Good morning. Over the next few months leading up to Easter, we're going to be diving into a new series. We're going to be looking at the life of Jesus. We're going to be looking at his person, his work, and we're going to begin the series this morning by looking at the very first moments of his life, uh, namely the first month of his life, and how already we see the stage being set for his work of redemption. So with that in mind, I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's word. From Luke 2, verse 21 to 39. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God. And he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town in Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. May you speak to our hearts this morning that we might know you and know your redemption. We pray in Christ's glorious name. Amen. You may be seated. If you know anything about Stan Lee or Stanley Martin Lieber, you would likely know that prior to his death two years ago, he was the face of Marvel, Marvel comic books, superheroes, all of those things, right? He, as one of the pioneers of the comic world, he created a number of some of the most well-known and beloved fictional characters that we have to date. Some superheroes like Spider-Man and X-Men and uh, the Hulk and then Fantastic Four, Iron Man and Thor and, and many others. 
If you know anything else about him, you also might know that Stan Lee has been known from time to time to appear at different points throughout his movies in, in the different stories of all these, of these superheroes from time to time. He might randomly pop up as a, uh, as a security guard or a bus driver or as a random bystander. Well, one of my personal favorites is when he shows up in Thor Ragnarok and uh, in this movie, he comes in as this character who had been tasked by the Grandmaster, the antagonist, uh, to cut, the, cut mighty Thor's hair, right? He comes in to do this in order to prepare him against his will to fight in these gladiator-type games. And uh, the scene is that Thor is strapped down, this huge, ma massive man is strapped down in this chair, and he's yelling out in protest by Odin's beard, you shall not cut my hair. And, and then what we see Stan Lee come in the room like Edward Scissorhands, and he's got this contraption, and he's ready to cut off these beautiful golden locks of Thor and, uh, off of him, and he's all of a sudden, this Norse god of a man starts begging, please don't cut my hair, and he's like, stay steady, my hands aren't as good as they used to be, and, uh, and it's just comical to watch, right, to watch this scene, and over time, this humorous, uh, this becomes this humorous expected thing, right, that Stan Lee the creator of the Marvel Universe would from time to time appear in his storylines of all these different characters. Well, as we've seen in the first few chapters of the Go Luke's Gospel, and even as we'll see this morning, this is what God does in a number of ways. He shows up from time to time and appears in this story in a very similar way. You know, God makes a number of different appearances uh, and we've seen this at times through the messenger and angel Gabriel. We've seen this at times through the Holy Spirit. And then eventually, most recently, in the person of Christ Jesus, his son, we see God showing up. And now, rather than coming, though, in these momentarily, uh, momentarily to provide comic relief like Stan Lee, God comes and he does so and he brings redemption. And to, he, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And his role is much greater and much bigger than that of Stan Lee's. In our passage this morning, we see him not only setting the stage for redemption, but doing so in a very personal way. This morning, I'm going to talk about three things. The details of redemption, the intimacy of redemption, and the joy of redemption. First, the details of redemption. If you look at verses 21 through 24, one of the first things you might observe and might stand out to you is how righteous and devout Mary and Joseph are portrayed, right? They are, they are portrayed as these people who are very obedient, law-keeping Jews. They're going through all the motions. They're doing all the right things that were expected of them. And it would be very tempting and very easy for us to focus in on, on that in that way, right? And even to go and look at the descriptions of Simeon and Anna who are described as devout and righteous, right, and holy in all these different ways. But to do so would to miss the big point, the big picture that's going on here. I think in all of these details that we're seeing here, all these ceremonies and rituals, there's a huge and massive point that Luke wants to get across to us, that he wants us to realize. And so we're going to take a few moments, and we're going to look at this, at these opening verses, beginning with one, the act of circumcision that we see in verse 21. Look with me there. In verse 21, we're told this, at the end 
of eight days, when he was circumcised, he being Jesus, he was called or named Jesus. And the name was that, the name that was given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. According to the commandment given in Genesis 17, uh, with the covenant with Abraham, we see that one of the requirements of Jewish parents is that they are required to uh, circumcise their male infants on the eighth day, right? And this was meant to be an outward sign, an outward sign not only to the world, but to themselves that they belong to the Lord, that they're in covenant relationship with, with God, with Yahweh. And if we ask the further question, why, why circumcision as the, as, the, um, as the sign of the covenant? Well, many scholars and theologians would, would say, say that this removal of the flesh was meant to be used as a sign of cleanliness. And we see this in Isaiah 52.1, where the words for uncircumcised is often connected and used interchangeably for being unclean. So it talks about this idea of cleanliness in it. And so if you were circumcised, uh, not only were you set apart to be the Lord, you engaged to be the Lord, but you were also considered clean, pure. Here lies the beauty of the scene, one of the many beauties that we're going to see in this. Jesus, the Son of God, the one who truly belongs to God, the one who is truly clean, in this moment, by taking on circumcision, is identifying with you and me. Right, this is incredible. He takes on himself what was intended to be used to bring in the outsider and what is used to represent the inward cleansing of us, of those who are unclean, and he does so yet as both an insider and as one who is clean. It is a beautiful picture of Jesus taking on the humanity, uh, uh, our humanity, taking on the fullness of who we are. Well, we get a similar picture in what's going on here in this idea of purification. That we see in verse 22 and 24. Look with me there. And when the time came for their purification, their being Mary and Joseph, right? And we, we, gain, we get that because if you look at the logical uh, progression of the text, right? It's they, the they that brought them, him to Jerusalem is Mary and Joseph, right? So they're there for their purification according to the law of Moses. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Well, one of the reasons why they are there is to, and going to Jerusalem is because Mary is seeking purification. The purification rite uh, is being done. According to the law in Leviticus 12, after the, the birth of a child, the woman is to wait 40 days and after the birth of the son, and then she'd go to the temple, and she'd offer two sacrifices. She'd offer a sacrifice of a lamb, and then she'd offer a sacrifice of a turtle dove or a pigeon. She would do this, right? But what we see in the text in verse 24 is actually that a pair of turtle doves are offered instead. What's going on here? Well, God accommodates for the poor in this law. And so those who can't afford a lamb, he gives the opportunity to buy two pigeons and sacrifice them instead. That's what we see going on here. So this is where we get this idea that Mary and Joseph were poor, right? Because they are offering a offering that is for poor people, right? And so this is what's going on here in seeking to be made pure, to be made clean. And so Jesus was ultimately one, and this is what's beautiful here, right? Again, here, see the foreshadowing that's taking place here. Um, this is what's amazing. Mary, as Mary is offering these sacrifices for their purification, she is holding the Holy Ones in her arms, the Holy One in her arms. Jesus will ultimately be the one who makes her pure. 
and Joseph pure, once and for all in the sacrifice on the cross. Following Jesus' sacrificial death, Mary and Joseph would never have to make another animal sacrifice again. Think about that. Holiness would be secured through him and on their behalf. God is in the details. He's working in all of these different things and all these different ways, and yet there's still more going on here. We see this. Not only did they go there for purification, but they go there to present Jesus to the Lord. Well, what's going on here? Well, we know from Exodus 13 that because of the the Passover in which when the angel of death is coming over, he tells the Israelites, God tells the Israelites to put blood of the lamb over the doorpost and 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 in doing so, their firstborn child would be spared. The angel of death would pass over them, right, and spare them. Well, one of the, the ways that they were to, the Israelites to remember this event is through this presentation of the firstborn, right? This is what they're to do. So in light of their, their firstborn being spared, they're acknowledging this past work of redemption by giving their firstborn of their cattle and livestock, but also their firstborn child. Now, when they give their child, they don't sacrifice the child, of course. Instead, um, it's used as a symbol. And unless the child was of the tribe of Levi, they're given this option, like a buyback option. They're able to redeem the child back, and we're told that the price of redemption is five shekels, and they're able to do that. So the father has the opportunity to buy back the son from the Lord. Again, representing the costly nature of of these sacrifices. Again, this is foreshadowing something. Through the presentation of Jesus, their firstborn, the Lord, uh, to the Lord, we see the Redeemer being redeemed. Do you see that? Joseph would pay five shekels to redeem Jesus, but Jesus would eventually give his life to redeem Joseph and Mary. Do you see the foreshadowing? Do you see the beauty in what's going on here? It is remarkable what's taking place here. So why is all this important? Why am I making a big deal about going into all these different things? Well, this is why it's important. Look how many times the law is mentioned in this passage. It's mentioned five times. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, we're told that they went there according to the law of Moses. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Again in verse 24, to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. And then eventually in verse 27, to do for him according to the custom of the law. And finally, the end of the passage, when it's wrapping everything up, it says in 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Why make a big deal about the law? Why talk about this? What does Luke not want you and I to miss? He doesn't want us to miss that it is Jesus who fully satisfies the law on our behalf. Jesus, from the very beginning of his life, even as a baby, even as an infant, is already fulfilling and completing all of the law on our behalf. And it is remarkable. He's submitting himself to every iota, every dot of the law, right? Even these rituals and ceremonies that we just saw here, Jesus is fully submitting himself to them. Why does this matter to you and me? Well, here's the thing. The law still stands. It doesn't disappear. It doesn't just go away miraculously, right? There are two types of people in the world, those who perfectly keep the law and those who can't. 
And there's only one person who did the first, right? And so for the rest of us, the law hangs over us and it condemns us. And it tells us that we can, it reminds us that we can't live up to the law. Even no matter how good we are, we all fall short of God's perfect law. Right? If we understand this, this bad, the bad news, we've only understood half of it. Right? There's the other half that goes on. The other half is that the baby in the manger would go on to spend his entire life perfectly obeying the law in your place. He would eventually be cut off from the father, circumcision, from the father in his suffering and his death. He would take upon himself all yours and my sin, all of our shortcomings, our failures, and he would pay the ultimate price, the ransom, the redemption, right, that would take place. And so now, when God the Father looks at you and I, now, instead of seeing a sinner, he sees a lawkeeper. Instead of seeing an enemy and an outsider, he sees a son and a daughter. This is the great implication by what, of what Christ does for us in us. Galatians 4 says this, 4 through 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, get this, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that what? We might receive adoption as sons. The good news, friends, for you and I is that the God of the universe enters into our story in the person of Jesus Christ to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That is good news. But the story does not stop here. Not only do we see the details of redemption, but we see the intimacy of redemption. With this backdrop in mind, all of these laws, all these rituals in mind, the movie, and the, or the story, excuse me, moves to Simeon, and then eventually to Anna, and God gives us this beautiful insight into the intimacy of redemption. And we see this intimacy in the promise that is given to Simeon. Look at verse 25 with me, with Simeon here. Verse 25, and now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was a righteous and devout man, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. We're told a number of things about Simeon. We're told, one, that he was a good man. He was a righteous man. He loved the Lord. He loved people. Um, and we're told that he longed for the consolation of Israel. He longed for that day when the great comforter would come and comfort his people with all of his promises and all the fulfillment. Right? This is another word and phrase for Messiah. He was waiting on the Messiah to come. But we're also told that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, up until this point, up until this passage, the Holy Spirit, which, again, remember, is the third person of the Trinity, it's God, uh, the third person of the Trinity, has been mentioned only a handful of times. It was mentioned once of John the Baptist in saying that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. It was mentioned another time of Mary. Mary would have the Holy Spirit come upon her, and that's how she will conceive of this child. And then it's told of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Right before Elizabeth sings and blesses Mary, and right before Zechariah prophesies, we're told that the Holy Spirit was upon them. And now, in just three verses, we see the Holy Spirit with Simeon mentioned three times. Three times in just three short verses. What's the significance here? What's going on here? Well, the Holy Spirit was upon them, and then look at verse 26 through 27. 
And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Why is this significant, right? Why why is it significant that the Holy Spirit is mentioned here, that the third person of the Trinity is here entering into this story? I mean, God could have, rather than sending himself, the Holy Spirit, he could have sent a messenger, right? He could have sent the angel Gabriel, just like he has done previously. But he doesn't. Instead, he sends himself. And we're told three different occasions that, he's, that himself is mentioned, right? He's mentioned three different times. Why? Why, does it, why is this the case? Why did he have to do this? Well, it tells us that he, had to t- he, he did so to make a promise, right? He made a promise to Simeon. And it's a very personal promise, right? At this point, uh, we have to ask the question, why did he make a promise to Simeon? Right? At this point, he's already made promises to all of Israel, right? That the Messiah is coming to anticipate the Comforter, right? It's why everyone is looking forward to this great Comforter, comforter right? And to this consolation and redemption. Why does he make this very personal promise that to Simeon, that Simeon, before he dies, will see the Messiah? Well, we know he didn't have to, but the, and the text doesn't tell us. And yet this is exactly what the Lord does. He condescends to his people, and he makes a promise to Simeon that he didn't even have to, right? And this is where we see the tension here, or the, this play out. And, and he came into the Spirit, in verse 27, into the temple, and when the, ter- the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God. All right? This is amazing. It's remarkable that God would come to Simeon and give him this sign and this promise to him. And this is what he, what he does. And so, like Mary and Zechariah before him, he bursts into song in verse 28 and 32 through 32. Now, now, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. When others saw a baby, Simeon saw salvation because he was, and because of that, he was ready to depart and to be with the Lord. (laughs) He had been satisfied. He had seen all he needed to see, and he was content to leave this world. The salvation he saw was awe-inspiring, one, because not only was it a glory to Israel, but it was a revelation to the Gentiles, right? It was the truth being revealed to him. And this is why Joseph and Mary marvel in verse 33. And then after blessing them, Simeon turns his attention to Mary. And he tells them a few things. Look with me at verse 34 and following. And Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The first thing that Simeon tells Mary is that her son Jesus would be a divider and a revealer. Instead of uniting the nation towards a glorious overthrow of Rome, their son would actually be destined for the cause of the rising and fall of many in Israel. And he would reveal their thoughts if we follow Luke's narrative and his story as it moves on, this is precisely what happens. In Jesus' ministry, it effectively splits the nation in two. You have the religious leaders on one side, who many of which reject 
Jesus as the Redeemer and oppose him. And then you have the others on the other side, many including Gentiles, many, including many Gentiles excuse me, uh, and they receive him as the Redeemer, right? We see the nation split in two. But that's not all, right? Up until this point, uh, the news has been very joyous, right? It's been occasioning for hope and excitement. But here we get this comment in verse 35, um, and for the first time we see the cross looming in the background. We're told this, and, and a sword will pierce through your own soul, Mary. This, of course, uh, would be a mysterious saying to Mary and to, uh, and to Simeon, who, who tells them this. They wouldn't fully understand the implications of what this really means, right? They just know that somehow this Jesus, her son, is going to be costly to her in some sort of way. But what we eventually see is that this ultimately points to the suffering and death of Christ and the sorrow and the grief and pain that this would cause Mary as she sees her son suffering and dying. Right, and so what we see here in these verses is God, God is, gives this personal promise to Simeon and gives this personal heads up to Mary, right? It's very intimate. It's very, he's entering into their story. For God, redemption is intimate. He loves to include the lowly, the seemingly insignificant, and the unworthy. Earlier this year, there's a documentary that came out uh, called uh, My Octopus Teacher. And the doc documentary features this diver um, and filmmaker, and he, uh, and this also, this relationship with this octopus. And so um, the story would go that day after day, he would kind of go out into the ocean, and he'd venture out in there, and he would, he begin to start bonding and interacting with this octopus and observing and watching, and to the point where they started to form some sort of bond and friendship over time. There's a point in which, in the scene, in which the octopus reaches out and puts the, its tentacle in his hand, right, as if like they're like holding hands for a period of time. And then as the documentary progresses, there's this other scene in which the octopus like storms at the man and with all of its tentacles like wraps around this man as if to hug him and to embrace him, right? It's this very shocking scene to like watch happening, right? And I think part of the reason why this is so shocking uh, to watch is because it's happening cross species, right? It's from one species to another, and then we don't usually see that kind of interaction happening. But here's the thing. I also, I have a relationship like this um, with another species, right? It has wolf's teeth, and it lives in my house, and his name is Louie, right? And this is not, and we're, we're friends. We're friends, right? And this is not shocking to me at all, right? It's not shocking to me that I have this kind of relationship with this dog. Here's, here's my point. I think that for many of us, including myself, that we are more likely to be more shocked by this man's relationship with this octopus than we are with the fact that God would have a relationship with us, right? And by thinking this, we're exposing and showing our cards, aren't we? Because we're showing that we don't really understand who we are. We don't really understand. In reality, right, we are much closer on the spectrum to any other creature than we are to God. In other words, it is less of a stretch for you and I to have a relationship with a worm than it is for us to have a relationship with God. Whether it's an octopus or a dog or a worm, we're all creatures, and God is the creator, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. Right? Those things don't are nowhere near the same. 
It is shocking. It should be shocking to us that God writes himself into our story, into the story of redemption, into our history, and into our lives. Part of the reason, think about this, part of the reason why Israel had so many laws, so many ceremonial laws that revolved around sacrifices and about ritual cleanliness is because they understood this difference and this distinction. Right? They understood that God was their creator and that they were his creatures. They understood that God was holy and that they were not. And so God created or provided all of these different laws and regulations so that they could temporarily have some sort of means in order to be in relationship with the God of the universe. And so God accommodates to the Israelites through these laws and the only reason why you and I don't have to go around making sacrifices and paying five shekels to redeem our firstborn is because Jesus satisfied every single one of those laws and he provided another way. Another way to relate with the God of the universe. That's amazing. That is amazing. Do you see the condescension of God, how he stoops down to his people, to you and I, so that we might experience relationship and intimacy with him? If he didn't, it would be impossible to otherwise. We've seen the details of redemption, we've seen the intimacy of redemption, and finally and briefly, we will see the joy of redemption. And we see this in Anna. Look with me at the final verses of this passage, verse 36 and following. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. What are we told about Anna? Well, we're told, one, she's a prophetess. We're told, too, that she's a, a Jew, right? We're told that she is a daughter of Phanuel, that she is of the tribe of Asher, right? She has deep roots in the Dr Jewish uh, faith and, and, and lineage. She's old, we're told. She's advanced in years, right? Assuming she was married around 13 or 14, uh, and then she was married for seven years, and then she was a widow for 84. That puts her in the ballpark of around 104 years old. Many theologians think she's around 100 or so, if we're, if we're to take it at that weight, right? We're also told that she was a widow. She was acquainted with grief. She was acquainted with loss. And she knew that for a long, long time. And then finally we're told she was righteous. <laughs> she never left the temple, right? She was, when it, if the doors were open, she was there. She loved the Lord, she sought the Lord, and she anticipated the Lord. I think what we gain from this little snapshot of Anna, this picture of Anna, why she's included in Luke's narrative, is that she shows us what it looks like to long for and cherish redemption when she sees it. She longed for the redemption, right? If you think about it, if there's anyone in all of Israel who longed for the redemption of Israel, it would have been Anna, wouldn't it? She'd been around a long time. She'd seen a lot of things. She knew a lot of brokenness. She knew a lot of loss and sadness. She longed for that day. And now it was here. And what did she do? 
She praised God, and she proclaimed him to everyone who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is our response to redemption. This is what we do. When we see redemption, when we see salvation, when we see the Messiah, we respond in joy. It is a marvelous and wonderful thing that God would would fulfill all of the righteous requirements of the law, that he would stoop low to us and have a relationship with us that we might know his joy and his redemption. It's an amazing thing. Friends, what a gift that the God the Father would send his Son, that Jesus would do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that he would dwell with us through his Holy Spirit, that we might know the fullness, the intimacy, and the joy of his redemption. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we should be blown away. We should be blown away that uh, you would send yourself in the Holy Spirit, in the form of your Son, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Father, you are a gracious and merciful God uh, who loves your people, who sees your people, who, who draws them to yourself. Lord, may we be enraptured by your beauty. May we be enraptured by the fact that you are a God that comes down to his people. Lord, we, we thank you for the gift of your Son. May we cherish him all the days of our life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.